This is Inside Firetown with Providence College Athletic Director Bob Driscoll. Welcome to episode number two of the Inside Friartown podcast. I'm your host, Mike DeMars, and I'm joined by the Athletic Director for Providence College and recent inductee into the Ithaca College Athletics Hall of Fame, Mr. Bob Driscoll. Bob, congrats on the induction. Thank you, Mike. It was a fun time up in Ithaca, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. I tell people it's not the end of the earth, but you can <laughs> you can see it for there. But it was a it was an amazing honor. I got to hang out with my former teammates and go back to the rink we played in and just a, a dream come true. So uh, really honored to be in the Hall of Fame. Well, turning back to Friartown, for the first time, we hosted Late Night Madness at the Dunk. And I told you Red Panda <laughs> would be a crowd pleaser. She didn't crushed I? it, didn't she? She crushed it. What were your thoughts on the event as a whole? Well, I think the energy was phenomenal. I think we had about 9,000 people down there. We had over 3,000 students, which I think is one of the largest um, events we've had for our, our general student population. Uh, I thought the event was was first class. I know the student athletes absolutely loved it. Uh, Red Panda was unbelievable. I don't think she dropped one plate, Michael. No, no. And she, uh, the, the exhilaration on her face when she landed that last, I think it was five or six bowls that she kicked up onto her head. Just you could see the excitement on her face, how excited and proud she was to to pull off the feet. Yeah, I think the crowd just loved it. I think she could have been the highlight, really, of <laughs> of the night. But I mean, there were some great acts. John Legend was was spectacular. You know, I was um, disappointed a little bit in the certainly the language that uh, uh, hoodie boogie with a hoodie, a boogie with a hoodie. We we certainly had in this contract that he couldn't use. Uh, profanity, unfortunately, I think he got caught up in the moment, but uh, the students didn't uh, didn't seem to mind. But certainly, that's not you know what we wanted to have in Friartown. But overall, I thought it was a spectacular night. Uh, we had a lot of great recruits there uh, as well. I know uh, Coach Crowley uh, got one of his top recruits out of Boston because of it. And you know, the thing I was really happy is about is our student athletes when they're on stage with them, with the artist, uh, they were really just really uh, excited. And um, I just think it was a great event. And Steve Napolo and his staff deserve a lot of credit. Yeah, I think it was a great event, especially for the women's basketball team that doesn't play at the dunk, doesn't play in front of crowds that large. I think they might have had the most fun that night watching them with the crowd introductions and everything else. Well, they've got some pretty good moves, Mike, don't you think? And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the men are used to playing in front of 12,000, but to have the relationship between the men and the women, uh, that's so respectful. And I was in the the club room before the game. We had all of our donors and season ticket holders down there. And just to see the the young men and women interact, not only with themselves, but with all of our fan base, it was really pretty special. So um, I was really happy that they had such a good time. Also, this month, you released the Athletic Department's Strategic Plan. Can you take us through the process of what goes into developing a plan like that? Yeah, it's a long-term process, Michael. That was a that was a two-year process. In fact, I engaged my teammate from Ithaca, Bob Korn, who was the AD at Vermont and actually has a PhD in organizational behavior. He actually did my strategic plan when I was a senior associate AD at the University of California for the Pac-10 almost 25 years ago. So he's a world-class um, writer in that regard and put us through that process and it took us about a couple of years. And this is our third strategic plan. And when you look around the campus and see all these beautiful new buildings and national championships and Big East championships and All-American, a lot of it came from these strategic plans, which sets um, a big vision for us. And uh, the next five years, it's it's how do we capitalize on the success we have right now? And really, I'm looking out the window right here. And the mission really is to create uh, 
you know, world-class scholars and students that when they graduate, that will impact the world in a, in a positive way. So uh, I'm really excited about it. It's a student-centered vision, and uh, it's something that uh, I think will take us to an entire new level. I know one part of the plan is using the men's basketball program to help fund the other departments, but you know that you can't always rely on a team's performance. So there's things that you're starting to put in place to help finance the department going forward and not just relying on one sport to kind of carry the load for everybody else, but, you know, putting measures in place in order to have, you know, financial growth Mm -hmm. for the department and be able to provide more resources for the student athletes going forward. Well, it's a, it's a resource game. Obviously the most important thing for me is the experience and, you know, creating a culture of us, we together friars, family. But if you want to compete for national championships, you have to have first class facilities, which we do. You have to have full scholarships, which we do. And then it's the the infrastructure around it. You know, we have an initiative on a mindfulness training for our student athletes that we've implemented. We've got You're Never Alone in Friartown, which is a mental health initiative. And I want our, our department to be a leader in, in diversity and inclusion, which takes resources and certainly uh, hiring young men and women of color and um, just to give more opportunity for all of our students here on campus. So, uh, you know, that comes through winning basketball games, selling tickets, certainly fundraising, getting to the NCAA, and certainly the college supports us as well. But the more successful you are, the more money you can raise, and we're going to reinvest it back into this new vision and strategic plan. And where do you hope to see Providence College Athletics in five years? Well, the goal is to continue to be one of the model programs in all of college athletics. You hear me talk about being most respected with 100% graduation and compete for championships. And, you know, we're the smallest school competing in two major conferences in the nation. And I want us to be known for great student athletes, but competing at the highest level. And, you know, Mike, you can't control the outcomes of games, but you can certainly put yourself in the position to win if you've got great leadership um, from the top down, from the board of the chairman of board of trustees to Father Shanley and now certainly Father Sicard to the coaches and to myself and my staff. So I want us to be the the model program in all of college athletics. We do all three of those things really well. Later in this episode, we will hear from Diane Maddell, the head coach of the Friars field hockey team. But first, I spoke with Friar legend, Cammie Granado. Our next guest is a Providence College graduate. She was the captain of the 1998 U.S. women's hockey team that won the first ever Olympic gold medal in women's hockey. She was inducted into the International Hockey Hall of Fame, the U.S. Hockey Hall of Fame, and the Hockey Hall of Fame. And she was recently named a pro scout for the new NHL franchise in Seattle. Our guest is Friar legend, Cami Granado. Cami, what are some of your fondest memories from your time at Providence College? Oh, you know what? It's funny because I have a lot of great memories. You don't ever forget your college experience because it was just such a great time to be with all these kids that are the same age. And for me, I think, you know, I had grown up playing in a male sport and told that women don't play hockey. And really I wanted to accomplish what my brothers did. I wanted to play pro. I wanted to play Olympics and I wanted to get a college scholarship. And so when I got a scholarship to Providence, I, I kind of knew in the back of my head, I might not be making the NHL. Um, so it was kind of my pinnacle at the time. There were no Olympics and a little bit of me was heartbroken that I couldn't do the same things my brother did, but I could get a college scholarship just like they did. And I could play every day, you know, be on the ice and play hockey. And those were my fondest memories. It was just, I was at the rink every single day. I was part of a team, um, that, you know, had a really 
really fun outlook and also just competitive. And so definitely walking over to Schneider to go to practice was, uh, those, those memories and then being with the team were awesome. And prior to the Olympics in 1998, you were part of the three nations cup team that won the gold medal. And that event took place about a month or two prior to the Olympics. Describe how it felt to beat Canada before heading to the Olympics at Nagano. We struggled to beat Canada from 1990 on until the Olympics year, really. Every big game that we played them in, psychologically, they just, they had us. They beat us in every different scenario and when it counted. And we just couldn't beat them on a big stage. You know, that win in Lake Placid, you know, gave us confidence. But we just, there was something really right with that team that year. There was just, we had, we had such great chemistry um, everybody was going to the Olympics as a rookie. We had no pressure on us as a team. I mean, Canada was so dominant that we we kind of went in with kind of a little bit loose. We, I mean, obviously we knew we could win it, but we just, we had something powerful as a group. And I think we, we didn't have that in prior years. Uh, that year, we just, it all came together at the right time. We did a lot of work um, doing visualization and sort of picturing winning and, you know, figuring out what we could control and what we couldn't. We did a lot of work off ice uh, to get ready mentally. And then on ice, I think we were probably, you know, it was the first time we had been together that long. We went on a pre-Olympic tour and it was just, uh, we were on such a high that the vibe with the team was just really, really good going into the Olympics. In an interview you did with NHL.com, you said that you had had other opportunities to work in the NHL and to get back into hockey, but that the Seattle opportunity was the right fit for you. What is it about the new Seattle franchise that makes it the right fit for you? So for me, um, the Seattle job was a perfect fit for a couple of reasons. One, it's an amazing organization, um, starting from the ground level. We've got great people already involved and, um, it's close to home relatively. It's three hours from Vancouver and it's on, you know, it's on the same coast. So that really excited me. And even, even when I heard about the, the franchise that was coming, I thought, God, I would love to be involved in that team. So, um, that was the first reason. And secondly, it just, it worked for me and my family over the, the course of the last 10, 12 years, you know, me having kids, I've had to say no to a lot of jobs in hockey, you know, some more smaller than others, whether it be coaching or, you know, running clinics and whatever it be. And then on a bigger scope with, with NHL jobs, mostly broadcasting in that, in that scope, but it just, it wasn't going to work for me to be on a plane uh, all the time when my husband already does that for his job. I really was dedicated to being home with the kids and making sure they had you know, had me at home. So, um, this one is the right fit. I, I do my job, m- most of it down the street at the Canucks games. I'm really, really excited to be a part of, of Seattle. And finally, what advice do you have for young hockey players aspiring to play in the Olympics or even professionally? Um, you know what? I think, I think it's dream as big as you want to dream. You know, my brother always had an awesome quote. My, my brother, Rob would tell me shoot for the moon. Cause if you miss, you're going to hit the stars. And in other words, he just met you never know what can happen when you try to do your best at something. Um, it's one thing to dream. It's another to work for it. And now when you're a kid, you got to have fun. I know there's, there's a lot more pressure. I can see with my kids these days, I'm like defining a kid really young or high performance teams, very young. And I think the failures that you may think the failures are not they're they're learning experiences. Um, they're ways to, you know, to get you better. And everybody has them. Everyone has ups and downs. Um, but if you keep dreaming, you keep loving something, you know, go for it. And, and you got to work hard to get it, but go for it. You're listening to Inside Friartown. I'm Mike DeMars. And as always, I'm joined by the Friars Athletic Director, Bob Driscoll. The state of California has made some headlines this fall with the passing of SB 206. 
named the Fair Pay to Play Act, which is a bill that would allow student athletes to sign with agents and sign endorsement deals while maintaining their eligibility. Bob, what are your thoughts on the legislation and what does it mean for the NCAA moving forward? Well, Mike, it's a very, very complicated issue. Um, and I think you've seen other uh, states now jump on board to pass their their laws as well. You know, there's there's been a push for a long period of time, I think, pay to play. In other words, pay our student athletes to play. But unfortunately, there's only, there might be 25 schools in the nation that actually make money off their their programs. We certainly don't balance our budget uh, based on the revenue we fundraise and generate through ticket sales and through the Big East. So um, the idea that you could pay your student athletes would be very, very difficult. You'd have to cut a number of sports to be able to do that. And here at Providence College, the only sport that actually makes money is uh, is men's basketball. Now, I, I'm all for uh, young men and women if they can use their name and likeness to help them with uh, shirts if they want to sell or if they want to do individual instruction and so forth. But at a place like Providence, you're not going to have that kind of demand where you know people are going to be making hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, you look at some of the football schools, uh, you know, you have some high profile student athletes that may be able to do that. But think about how complicated it is. Let's say you have got a, a Heisman Trophy quarterback that can, you know, use his name and likeness and make $100,000 or more. But what about the offensive lineman or the center that's blocking for you? What do you what do you give that that young man? Yeah, that was that was one of the questions that came to me, you know, to my mind was, you know, you have the star athletes that can go out and get these endorsement deals. But what about the other members of their team? And is that going to cause issues in the locker room? You know, like you said, you have a quarterback making X from Nike or Pepsi or somebody. And then the linemen that are blocking for him, you know, if they're not getting their cut, you know, is that going to cause a rift between teammates? Yeah, I think it I think it would. It would be the haves and the have nots. I think we um as the NCA body have done a bad job articulating what the value of the education is. I think about Providence College and what a full scholarship is. And then if you added in the academic support, the travel, the meals, the facilities, uh, certainly the coaching. I mean, we've got six or seven young men in the NHL today, and there's not one of those young guys that would be in the NHL today if it wasn't for the coaching and teaching and the education that they got under Coach Lehman here, um, if you look at the quality of college athletics on most campuses, if you took that group of people and actually put them in a a pro league, no one would come <laughs> and watch them, you know, because it's not the reason they're coming to watch is because of the histories of the institutions and the infrastructure of the alumni. So I think we should do more. There's no question. It's, it's part of why we pay the cost of attendance. But I do think the value of a, a full scholarship and the coaching and, and the experience they're getting is um, is something that um, is more value than perhaps I think people give credit for. But this is not going to go away. You know, I think it's going to be a complicated issue that I don't think anybody has any simple answers to. Do you think there would be, you know, some people are saying this could be the end of the NCAA or there could be a split where you have some of the power programs that could afford potentially to pay players do you see a split coming in the near future or is this something that's going to play itself out and there'll be a resolution and then we'll kind of move forward from there, but we won't be a major, you know, turnover of college athletics as we know it today. Well, it sounds easy that, you know, the, let's say the 60 top football schools, basketball schools in the country could go their separate way. But the question is, would, would TV pay the kind of money for it? Maybe, maybe they would, but you'd certainly, 
you wouldn't have the NCAA basketball tournament the way it is today. Part of the great interest in it is watching, you know, the David and Goliaths, right? And uh, as I said earlier, there aren't many schools that are actually making money off their their athletic program. So I, I don't see that happening. I know they have to, um, they're, they're creating some carve-outs right now, which um, there's a committee that's put that putting some things together that Val Ackerman's on and some of the best minds in college athletics to carve out, to protect some of the amateurism, in, but doing more, I think, for our student athletes. I, the problem is the public perception is that coaches are making so much money uh, on bowl games and, and if you get to the NCAA tournament, and yet you can't do anything for the student athletes. So um, I think we need to do more, but I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's still a pretty good um, entity right now that everybody really enjoys. And I think the other thing we have to remember is that it's not, we touched on before, I don't think it's a major windfall for every single NCAA athlete. You know, these major brands, you know, Nike's not going to go out and sign the, you know, backup long snapper on a football team to an endorsement deal. It's just not going to happen. So I think that it will only really be affecting the elite of the elite and those most likely are going to be the players going on to the next level, making their money in the NBA, in the NFL, in the NHL as well. So I think it's a very small number of athletes that this would actually affect. I, I think that's really well said, Michael. And I think that's kind of what we have to get out to, to realize that this is not going to impact a lot of people at the end of the day. And my worry is that if it gets forced where you have to start paying student athletes, that you're going to see the elimination a lot of team sports that aren't generating any money. I mean, even the NCAA might have to change the number required to be a division one program. Uh, you know, cause if you really cut it down to the school, the programs that make money, you know, it's uh, it's football and a handful of basketball and no one else, maybe a handful of hockey, but there's, there's not a lot of money in it at the end of the day. Providence college has named a successor to father Shanley, and we will discuss the impact it will have on the athletic department. But first, I sat down with the head coach of the Friars field hockey team, Diane Maddell. Our next guest was a two-time All-American field hockey player and an NCAA national champion. She represented the United States at the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta and is the current head coach of the Friars field hockey team. Our guest is Coach Diane Maddell. Coach, how has Providence College and the field hockey program transformed during your time in Friartown? Gosh, how has it transformed? Um, first of all, the history of the program is phenomenal. Um, prior to me getting here over the course of, uh, when the program first started, um, they had major success. So it has been an inspiration to try and get back to some of that success. And, uh, we've been very fortunate to have so many great people come through the program that were, that are inspiring and that uh, were inspired to try and take the program, uh, to new places. So, as far as transformation, I think every day we're always trying to get better. And I think uh, we find those athletes, those student athletes that uh, aspire for that as well. When it comes to recruiting student athletes, what characteristics do you feel are most important? Yeah, I think it's all about the intangibles for us. Uh, we look for someone who just has a, a competitive spirit like no other, someone who grinds and is willing to run through a wall. Um, someone's coachable, obviously. One of the main uh, main things that we look for is someone who understands being what a good teammate is and the selflessness that goes behind that. Um, it's so much bigger than uh, just one person or just a couple people. And um, I think that selflessness is something that we look for, for sure. And your program has used the motto DASH, D-A-S-H. Can you tell us where that came from and what it means? Sure, yeah. Um, a few years ago, 
it's kind of a, maybe a little morbid, uh, but it does uh, stem from um, from a funeral, a poem uh, read at a funeral called Dash, and they were talking basically about the person who had passed away and that they were born a certain year and they passed away a certain year, but all that really mattered was how they lived their Dash in between. And um, we in at College Athletics, uh, though it's not morbid, um, we only have these student athletes for a short amount of time. So we want to make the most of that time and provide them with the best environment for them to grow and and be able to prosper as much as possible at the time they're here, but also preparing them for after they leave Providence College and be able to be a, a really good contributor uh, to society afterwards. And on the field hockey social media this year, we've seen the hashtag blaze the trail. Yes. Where did that come from? Yeah, I think um, it kind of stems back to your first question a little bit. We've done amazing jobs with our program over the years and our student athletes that have been a part of that. Um, it's trying to take it to a, you know, a new place, another place that hopefully all of our alums can be proud of and, you know, blazing that final piece to um, not final piece, but blazing that little last stretch that we can go new places and, and I uh, thought Blaze the Trail was a cool way of uh, kind of symbolizing that. And finally, Coach, you've had a challenging non-conference schedule this year. Was that by design? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a very uh, experienced group this year and felt like, um, you know, we were ready to take on um, as much as we possibly could. Um, we have great leadership uh, from every every player on the team, but we have seven seniors and two grad students that have really taken the reins of providing um, that leadership on and off the field. And I think playing that schedule, you know, I think it has prepared us for this time of the season now and, you know, having everything they've done in preparation for a number of years, but specifically this past year has really hopefully paying dividends and, but there's a lot of season left. So, um, but yeah, um, you gotta, you gotta play the best teams and so that you can see where you're at and get better. <laughs> Welcome back to the Inside Friartown Podcast. I'm Mike DeMars, and once again, I'm joined by Bob Driscoll. This will be Father Shanley's last year as the president of Providence College. Can you talk about his leadership and what it's meant to the athletic department? Well, Father Shanley's been an amazing teammate. I've had the honor and privilege to work with him for over the last 15 years, and we've been partners in creating, I think, one of the model programs in college athletics. You know, it's uh, it's really important to have people in leadership that values college athletics. And I know father values it, not so much because of winning, but because of the core values that we teach our student athletes through sports, hard work, dedication, commitment, loyalty, selflessness, all the things that are going to make them successful in life. And I'm not sure he would support it to the extent he does if we weren't educators first and foremost. So I think we're doing it really the right way. Um, he's going to be missed tremendously. I know that he loves athletics. Uh, He's an athlete himself. He's been a great leader within the Big East, and I know he's really well-respected by the other presidents and certainly Val Ackerman, but uh, hopefully he's not going to go too far away, that he will take a sabbatical leave and come back to uh, to Providence College. So I can't say enough good things about Father, but um, I'm also excited about the fact that his right-hand person, Father Ken Sicard, who has been... Um, my teammate as well for the last 15 years is going to be taking over for father. And uh, he also understands the value that athletics brings, not only in terms of the student athletes participation, but, you know, athletics is the front porch to the institution. All of our games are on national television with Fox. And 
you know, if we're a tuition-driven institution, we're attracting student athletes, having a big-time athletic program can really get your brand out there. And I think he understands that and values that. So um, hopefully we won't skip a beat. And I think it's a smart decision by the trustees because the succession plan is really, really important. So I'm excited about both. And you, you've mentioned you've worked with Father Sicard for a number of years already. So you don't really see much changing as far as the athletic program here at Providence College. You know, I really don't. I'm not sure he will be as vocal a spokesperson as Father Shanley has been, but he doesn't need to be. I mean, Father Shanley was an unusual person in that regard. Most presidents uh, don't do the kinds of things he does. But Father Sicard doesn't need to do those things. I mean, he, he'll support us and value that. And, you know, he has me as the leader of the athletic department who's been doing this for 45 years. So he knows that I'm going to do what's in the best interest of the college. Uh, he tr We have a tremendous trust and respect for each other. So um, I have great confidence in Father Sicard. I'm certainly going to miss Father Shanley because he's a close personal friend. But, uh, you know, all of our time comes to an end. There's going to come a time I'm going to turn the reins over to somebody else, uh, somebody much younger and better looking, Michael. Maybe, maybe you can do that job. But uh, I, I think we're going to be fine. I don't think we'll skip a beat. Well, this is our October episode, and I'd be remiss not to have us share some of our favorite Halloween stories. I'll go first. So might not be my favorite Halloween story, but I believe I was about three or four years old. One of the first times I'm really going around in the neighborhood trick-or-treating with my mom or dad and and I remember I was at this house and I went up these big, it seemed like big stairs at the time, went up three or four stairs, rang the doorbell <laughs> and uh, the door opened and this huge dog jumps out and it's excited and it throws its paws on my shoulder and knocks me back off the three or four stairs. My parents, I jumped straight back off the three or four stairs. And uh, that was the last time I trick-or-treated for a while. I didn't, uh, I was a little too scared of uh, trick-or-treating and dogs for a little while, probably Probably not till I was probably 11, 12, 13 years old. It was a good, you know, seven, eight years or so before I started trick-or-treating again. So the real question is, do you remember your costume? I don't. I oh. don't. I don't know what it was because it was so I blocked it out of my mind. I think it was so traumatic for me that I didn't. And I think the next time I went out, I went out as like a baseball player or something, just threw on my uniform and went out. But, but yeah, I think I blocked that out of my mind. I don't even remember what it was. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I, I've got a lot of Halloween memories. We we had a lot of fun as young young people, but the one that I remember the most vividly is when I was testing uh, friar mascots when I first came to Providence, and I wanted to be a really tough one. And you've seen uh, some of the ones that have been putting mothballs in my office, right? Well, one of the heads that you see in there was one that I was testing uh, when I first came to Friartown. I, were, I, I had my Letterman's jacket on, Friar Letterman's jacket on. I had the Friar head on. And I had a pair of gloves and I sat on my front porch with candy in a bowl. And as the little kids would come up to take the candy, I would say, go Friars. Now, they thought I was a dummy up there. And the kids would look at the Friar head and run away screaming at the top of their lungs, which is not what the impact I wanted. <laughs> so it didn't test well then. <laughs> so it didn't test well. So I have it sitting on my desk in there. And I went to what I thought was a, a kinder, friendlier one, but it's still rated as the top 10 scariest in the country and people want me to retire it, but you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity, Michael. So that's my favorite, I think, Halloween Friar story. That's a great story. No more tests, test runs with Friar uh, no mascots more test in the future. I've decided, well, that's why we brought Huxley. We had to get a warm and cuddly little dog. And I think uh, for the, for the young kids that want the warm and cuddly and 
And for the ones that want the scary, we've got the best of both worlds. Well, thanks for listening to episode two of the Inside Friartown podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app. Special thanks to our guests, Cami Granado and field hockey coach, Diane Maddle. I'm Mike DeMars. He's Bob Driscoll. And as always, go, go Friars. Friars.